Take your Bible this morning and go to Matthew chapter 8. We're going to stay there even this communion morning. Uh, we're going to press on in Matthew. I think that uh, our time of study this morning will dovetail well uh, with our time of remembering the Lord's sacrifice at the Lord's table. And I uh, hope that that will be beneficial to you. Even as we study, I trust you'll be preparing for that. Uh, we do not practice a closed communion, which means that you don't have to be a member of our local assembly to be a part of our communion service. But we do uh, clearly see in Scripture, 1 Corinthians 11, that uh, the celebration of remembering the Lord's sacrifice is exclusively for those who are members of the body of Christ. And so uh, whether or not you're a... Um, a member of this expression of the body of Christ, you do need to be a follower of Christ who is living um, a pattern of obedience and walking with the Lord. And so I trust you'll be preparing yourself uh, for that as we prepare at the end of our service to uh, really celebrate what the Lord has done at the cross and go back and remember that together through the ordinance of communion, taking bread and uh, juice and the Lord ordained that for us at the Last Supper, and we're so thankful for that to remember the new covenant that we have in His blood. Okay, so that's coming at the end of our time, and we'll work our way there through Matthew chapter 8 uh, this morning. Let me go before the Lord and ask for His blessing, and uh, you can join me in prayer as we begin our time of study in the Word. Father, we confess together, and I confess before you that... This is your time. We want to be wise stewards of your time. And this study is it's for your glory. We want our lives to be trophies of your grace. And so we willingly offer up these moments that we're going to study your word to you. We recognize that we are studying the the words of the eternal God who created us and who, according to the glory of his grace, rescued us from our sin. We confess and acknowledge that we are coming to your word, those of us who are yours, not upon our own merit. We, we, we don't come to you attempting to impress you this morning. We could not. We could not add to the merit that is ours because of the sacrifice of your son. We have been granted his righteousness. We have been covered by his blood. We are clothed in him. And we confess that there could be no more love for us than you have for us in Christ. So we want our attention, our focus, our submission and humility before your word to mirror that righteousness, to reflect the effects of that righteousness that has been imputed, been granted to us in Christ. We also confess that we left to ourselves not only do not have any merit before you, but we don't have any ability to rightly grasp your word. I don't have any ability to rightly understand and communicate what is found here in this portion that we'll study together this morning. And so we we come asking for um, a fresh awareness and 
a new mercy of your Spirit's activity with us this morning. We acknowledge that He alone gives us understanding. He, he applies the Word to our lives. He takes the truths that we find on the pages of the Scriptures and He, he drives them deep, for it is His Word. And it is alive and it's powerful and it's sharp enough to go where nothing else can go and to divide what nothing else can divide. We need your grace this morning. I need your grace this morning, Father. And so I ask that you would bless our time. May it be for you and for you alone. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of my living spiritual heroes, um, who is no mystery or no uh, stranger to you all, um, our pastor from down south, John MacArthur, is constant in his reminder to us as students there that the meaning of Scripture is the Scripture. If we don't understand the meaning of the Bible, then we are left with something less than what the Holy Spirit preserved for us and gave to us in the Bible. So rightly grasping a portion of Scripture is directly connected to the Spirit's activity through that Scripture in our lives. I hope that makes sense. We need to understand what is said so that it can be applied and we can understand how it must affect us. And that's all a part of what we do when we come to the scriptures. The fancy word for that is hermeneutics. We need to study the Bible in a way that honors the intent that the Holy Spirit had through these words. I say all that because this morning's text is one of those texts that has been removed from its context And it's going to be familiar when we read it. It's been removed. It's been abused. It's been misused. It's been misunderstood. All with, no doubt, the right motive. The motive of making this passage applicable to our lives. And yet, I think if we are careful this morning, when we handle the Word of God, we will find the greatest benefit from the Holy Spirit utilizing what He intended from His Word In our lives as he affects change. Matthew chapter 8 and verses 23 down through verse 27 is where we're going to study this morning. And it's such a familiar text, but we'll read it again together. Jesus has been with the crowds. He's come down from the mountain. He's been, Matthew has been recording his miraculous work. He has just spoken about true discipleship, what it is to follow him. And in verse 18, we find Jesus saying to um, the disciples, he gave orders to go over to the other side. He wanted to get to the other side of the, the lake that is the Sea of Galilee so that he could have a reprieve from the crowd. And verse 23 picks that up. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And the disciples there, obviously, it's not the broader disciples. The thousands of people did not jump into the boat. That's the whole point. It's the 12. The 12 come along with him and they follow him into the boat. Verse 24, and behold, there arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. It's an important little phrase. Jesus was asleep. And they went and woke him saying, save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, why are you afraid? Oh, you of little faith. Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea. And there was a great calm. 
And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even the winds and the seas obey him? And you say, Now, how could we mess up this portion of Scripture? Well, historically, there have been many people, and this continues today, who have tried to use this account as an allegory, as um, a type, something that is a picture of something else. And so some familiar ways that this has been interpreted in the past is that the boat is Matthew's church. And what he pictures here is the church with Jesus in the boat, which is the church. And and the sea represents the, the, the community in which they lived and and the suffering and persecution is the storm. And as long as they remain with Jesus in the boat, Jesus will calm the persecution and he'll preserve his people. Maybe more up to speed with today's understanding of this passage is that the boat represents your life. And the seas represent the problems of your life. And the storm represents the problems of your life. And so you may have read this passage or heard this passage explained like, when you face the storms of life, right? That's an allegory. That's, that's basically saying that this account is here to depict something else. And so the boat is our lives. And as long as our lives are lived with Jesus in the boat, I'm not sure how the sleeping part fits in, but as long as our lives are with Jesus in the boat, the storms of life will be calmed. And we'll ultimately know blessing. And while I understand the desire of an allegorical approach to portions of Scripture, even like this one, I, I propose to you this morning that they fall short of what we should understand from Matthew chapter 8, verses 23 through 27. And really what the Holy Spirit intended for us to know and to grasp what He intends to use in our hearts and lives to transform us into the image of His Son. Our Savior. So what we're desiring to do this morning is get back to what the Holy Spirit intended when he superintended Matthew's writing of this account. You know the context if you've been with us in our study of Matthew. We've seen Jesus Christ, his authority in words, right? The Sermon on the Mount was a display of his authority. At the very end of the sermon, at the end of chapter 7, the people marveled because they'd never heard someone teach like this. He didn't quote all the scribes. He didn't back himself up. He just declared, this is truth. And so his authority was put on display. And then we moved from that. And in Matthew's thematic way of writing, this is not chronological. He's not writing with a time or a historical time slots. He's writing with themes in mind. And we moved from authority in word. Now in chapter 8, we've moved into seeing the authority of Jesus in action. And so we have a set of three miracles that started this portion showing the authority of Jesus. We now have come to another set of three miracles, and we will conclude this portion with four final miracles, ultimately, within chapter 9. Splitting those miracle sections, there are instructions and accounts dealing with discipleship, what it is to follow Jesus. It's as if we've heard the authoritative words, now we're seeing the authoritative actions, and intermittently, intermittently we are seeing what it is to follow Christ. We're hearing again from him what it is to be his disciple. 
Now, that brings us to this first of the second set of three miracles and the validation of Jesus as the Son of God, which is Matthew's goal. And it brings us to asking, what is the proper way to understand this account? Is the boat our life or is it the church? The boat is the boat. And are the storms uh, persecution on the church or struggles in my life and trials that I'm going through. No, the storm is actually a storm. And the water is actually water. And the disciples are actually 12 real people. And Jesus is actually the real Jesus. And the Sea of Galilee is actually the Sea of Galilee because this is a historical account for the purpose of making a point to us. It's not an allegorical section of Scripture. It's not painting a picture of something else or depicting some greater spiritual truths. It is a real account to show us, to validate for us, the real power and authority of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, from this simple account, and it is very simple. In fact, I'm again amazed at Matthew's understatement in this account. But from this simple account... We're going to look at four truths that come right out of this account that will help inform our thinking about our Lord Jesus. Four powerful truths that come directly from this simple account that will help inform our thinking and our worship and our allegiance to our Lord Jesus. All right, the account is really simple. Big crowds, Jesus is doing an unbelievable number of miracles The crowds are all over him. And if you're a a claustrophobic person, you can only imagine what Jesus is going through. In fact, what we're going to find out very soon in, in our future studies in just a couple of weeks is that there is so much of a crowd around Jesus that at one point he is healing an individual. Someone else is grabbing his clothes and in grabbing his clothes, they are also being healed and he doesn't even know who's being healed. People are pressing on him. He is constantly dealing with people. And so I can sympathize with his saying, let's get to the other side. Why was Jesus off to the other side? Well, because he needed a retreat. He needed a break. He needed sleep. He goes out with the disciples. They get in a little boat. These boats are not what you may think. This is no yacht. Um, This is maybe a 25-foot fishing boat made out of wood. It may have had a little covered section at the front where they would um, store their equipment, where Jesus most probably was sleeping on top of tarps and nets and other things that would have been in that boat. It could hold up to as many as 10 passengers and a five-man crew. Okay, this is a very simple device. They get in this boat, Jesus crawls into the cubbyhole, and he's out. And the storm comes so quickly and this is no surprise because the sea of galilee sits below sea level it's down in a very low section and with the weather the way it is in that area of the world the storms come instantly and can leave just as instantly and so the disciples they set out thinking let's get away from the crowds who knows what the disciples are doing they're just sitting by waiting while the lord takes his nap the storm comes along they're scared for their lives you can understand that you can sympathize with them They're scared out of their minds and they keep thinking, when exactly is Jesus going to wake up? Because we're pretty sure we're all dying in this. This little boat, 
this little boat is going to capsize, we're going to drown, and the story is going to end with all 13 of us at the bottom of the Sea of Galilee. They finally wake him up. He rebukes them. He questions their faith. He then turns and looks out from the boat, rebukes the wind, um, which is, must have been an unbelievable sight, rebukes the wind and the sea, says, stop it, and it stops. We don't know what Jesus does at that point, but we know what the men do. They say, who are we dealing with who can just tell the wind to stop and it stops and the sea to stop and it stops? Okay, that's the account. And that's exactly what happened. That's exactly what took place at this point in our Lord Jesus's ministry. Now, from that simple account, rather than allegorizing it and making it a picture, let's look at truths that come directly from this portion. Let's let those truths inform our thinking about our Lord, which will in turn allow the spirit to continue the change process in us as followers of Christ. Truth number one, Jesus is the God man and he was tired. Jesus is the God man and he was tired. Number two, Jesus deserves fearless faith. Jesus deserves fearless faith. Number three, Jesus has authority over the course of nature. Quite obvious, it seems. And number four, Jesus must be fully known to be fully trusted. Okay? So these are four simple truths that come right out of this narrative that I trust this morning will help inform our thinking, remind us of the one who died in our place, and prepare us for remembering him at the Lord's table. Number one then, Jesus is the God-man and he was tired. Look at verses 23 and 24. And let's just briefly examine these verses. Jesus got in the boat. His disciples go in right after him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. A great picture. There's water coming into the boat. But Jesus was asleep. And maybe you've never thought about it. Maybe there's so much flannel graph in your mind of Jesus laying on this boat, right? From Sunday school. Maybe there's so many picture books of this that it never crossed your mind that the God of very gods, the creator of the universe, the sustainer of all things, Colossians 1 tells us. The one who came and humbled himself, Philippians chapter 2, is now sleeping because he is human. He is man. He is 100% God who has set aside the prerogative to his divine capabilities, his divine rights, his divine power. He has humbled himself. And become like us. He does not experience sin. But he is human in every form. And he needs sleep. I think this is an amazing thought. Maybe it doesn't strike you as amazing as it does to me. But Jesus was exhausted. He was relentlessly teaching. Which is exhausting. He was interacting with people that he didn't know. Can you imagine this? Jesus was dealing with strangers almost 24 hours a day. Jesus was ministering to 12 individuals whom he had just recently met. And he was teaching them relentlessly. He was healing. He was fighting spiritual battles. 
with the enemies of God. He was casting out demons. And he was tired. You know why this is amazing? Because of what is true about our God as revealed in Psalm 121 verse 4. And you know this one. The one who watches over Israel. Psalm 121 verse 4. Who neither slumbers nor sleeps. You have a heavenly father. I have a heavenly father who never gets tired. He never sleeps. He never pauses. He never needs rejuvenated. He never needs a fresh sense for the day. He never needs a rest that would provide for him a a restoring of energy so that he can go on being God. And yet here we find the second person of the Trinity, the eternal son of God, who has taken on human flesh and he is tired and he is sleeping in the most unbelievable sleep conditions I've ever heard of. I need a very comfortable bed. I need a lot of covers. I need a cool temperature and some white noise. None of which were available on a 25 foot fishing vessel in the middle of the Sea of Galilee with 12 men right outside of me, being swamped by waves. Here's Jesus. This is how tired he is. You say, well, why does that matter? Well, that matters because of what is true in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. And I have been unable to get past my meditations of Hebrews chapter 4. Flip over there if you can. Hebrews chapter 4, if you desire to. My Bible is getting worn out going to Hebrews chapter 4. Because the sleep of Jesus, similar to the marveling of Jesus and what is to come in him asking who touched his garment, the the unbelievable marvel of his emptying of himself and the incarnation, Philippians chapter 2 and all those truths, those are not just theological thoughts. Those are not just seminarian thoughts. Those are not pastoral things that I'm supposed to think about and, and you're not supposed to think about and They're not church thoughts that are supposed to be boring things that you fall asleep while we're thinking about them. Because Hebrews chapter 4 says those truths about Christ as the incarnate, the incarnate one, the God man is supposed to be an encouragement. It's supposed to be a comfort to you. Because here's what's true. We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the son of God, since we have him, let us hold fast our confession. Don't give up. The truth, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. But one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. The simple reality is. Jesus is seen in this historical narrative, in this miraculous validation of his claim to be the Messiah. He is seen to be a sympathetic high priest. He was tired. He needed to sleep, and he did. Jesus is the only God-man who knows our humanity experientially and sympathizes with us even as our exalted high priest. When was the last time in your tiredness? When was the last time in my tiredness? And I don't know about you, but about 3 p.m. The wheels start falling off this wagon. I start getting tired. 
When was the last time in the moment of exhaustion and tiredness, moms, in the moment of your most frazzled moment, you've been chasing kids, you've been disciplining, you've been feeding, you've been washing, you've been dealing with a day-to-day routine that is wearing you out. Do you know that you have a high priest? Do you know that you have one at the right hand of the Father who not only saved you from the penalty of your sin, who not only forgave you and provided righteousness for you, but he was tired. He knows what you feel. This is an undeniable fact about our Christ, and it is a devotional truth that needs to come from this account. Jesus was asleep. Now, that certainly is not the major emphasis of this paragraph, but it is an emphasis and one that I think we need to pause and consider. Number two, Jesus is not only the God man who was tired. Jesus deserves fearless faith. Now, let's move on with the heart of the story. The heart of the story is not the nap. Okay, it was what was going on during the nap, because during that nap, there was a storm that was wrecking havoc on this little fishing vessel. Verse 25, the men finally run and get Jesus awake. They wake him up. And they say to him, save us, Lord, we are perishing. And Jesus responds to them, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the seas, and there was a great calm. Jesus deserves fearless faith. The disciples cannot handle their fear anymore. Here's the reality. If you've ever been in a life and death scenario like this, where things are tough, I was thinking this week in very um, current events, you're on an airplane, you take off from LaGuardia or wherever it was that they took off of from, you start circling and it seems weird that you're circling after you just took off. Pilot comes on and says, we're having some problems. Uh, you're sitting near the wing. You're seeing flames come out of the left side of the plane on the wing. He says, uh, you're going to need to brace yourself because I'm going to bring us in for a water landing. Okay, right there, uh, you are aware of the reality of life and death. Similar to these men. They're in this boat. Life is very scary at this moment. They come and wake up Jesus because in their panic, they they cannot imagine dying without waking up Jesus, the one that they're following, the rabbi the teacher, the healer, the miracle worker. And so they wake him up and they say, save us. It's their natural response to him. You've done all these other things. Save us because we're about to die. And here's the amazing response from Jesus. And what a pointed response. We're getting used to him doing this. Jesus' response reveals the ignorance of their fear. Jesus says in verse 26, why are you afraid? Oh, you of little faith. Why are you afraid? And you can almost see Peter because surely he was the one talking. You can almost see Peter rolling his eyes as there's water just dripping off of his face. Why are you afraid? But the biting point on the accusation is, oh, you of little faith. Jesus is pointing out the ignorance of their fear. They are afraid because of a deficient view of who is asleep in their boat. 
if they rightly understood who it was that was sleeping up there on the nets and the tarps, fear is not the natural response. This is a convicting account. Jesus clearly communicates with the disciples that their fears are not compatible with a genuine faith in him. And that's the heart of this account for us. When we face scenarios where we are aware that we are out of control, we are not able to adjust the situation. And I don't care what that is. Whatever those accounts are, whatever those trials are, whatever those situations are, and we respond with a terrified, fearful response. Jesus here communicates to the 12 disciples in the middle of a life and death storm in the middle of the Sea of Galilee in a little fishing vessel that terrified response is not compatible with a faith response that understands who he is. The disciples go wake him up and they have some prayer time with the Lord Jesus face to face. They interact with him directly and they beg him to save them. He doesn't rebuke them for asking him. He rebukes them for the fear that so obviously uncovered their heart condition. They were terrified that there in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, the messianic plan of God was going to fail. They were all going to die. The promised one, the son of Abraham, the son of David, David, the one whose lineage was the miracle of providence, he was going to die in a storm and God's plan was going to be thwarted. I mean, that, that's what's portrayed in their terrified response to this storm. It was not waking up Jesus and saying, Lord, we acknowledge that you alone can stop this storm. Would you please? This was save us because we're going to die. And Jesus says, you're terrified inappropriately. It is a deficiency in your faith that is resulting in your fear. Faith overcomes fear and fear destroys faith. In 1 Timothy 1, Paul reminds young Timothy, the pastor at Ephesus, that God has not given us a spirit of fear. It is not the natural response of those who are under supernatural control as the children of the Most High. So let me ask you a couple application questions. Do you and I know Christ in such a way that our belief in him drives out fear in the midst of trial? In the midst of a scary situation, humanly speaking, in the midst of a life and death scenario, in the middle of difficulty, is our faith in Christ such? Does it have a quality and an information system that drives away fear? Because that is the biblical, that is the grace-saturated response that comes from those who truly know Jesus Christ. Fearful prayers often are faithless prayers. Confession of fear is an appropriate step toward faith-filled interaction with God. So Jesus here rebukes these men. And he comes back to the faith issue, the same that he had with the centurion. Remember the centurion? Just say the word, Lord. 
and she'll be healed. And he says, I am marveling because I have never seen this kind of faith in all of Israel. Here he is on the negative side and he asks the disciples, what's wrong with your faith? Why are you scared? If we have an appropriate understanding of our Savior, his power, his authority, his sovereignty, his rulership over all that is, how can we be afraid for our own well-being? He holds us in his hands. He watches over us. He cares for us. He gives grace and mercy from the throne of grace for us. How can we be scared? How can we be fearful with a Christ like this one? Powerful truth number three. Jesus has authority over the course of nature. And this needs to inform our faith and drive out our fear. Notice what happens in this account. I mean, basically, Jesus rebukes them, but then he turns around and he rebukes nature itself. He the very course of nature, a storm that happened because pressures were different in the air and moisture levels were different and temperatures were different. And he just says, that's it. Correct it. Stop. Stop being the wrong temperature. Stop being different moisture levels. Stop. And it stops because Jesus has that ability. He has that power. He has that authority. Verse 26 tells us, then he rose and rebuked the wind and the sea. And there was a great calm. All of us can picture this. We can picture the calm after the storm and we can picture, at least I try to picture the awkward silence on the boat. They just got rebuked and then it got really quiet. Nothing like getting rebuked and then it getting quiet, right? Nothing we want more than noise when we're under conviction. He rebukes them. Boom. Dead quiet. Glassy sea. And there's that awkward situation of knowing that they're looking at the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who controls the very course of nature. Matthew doesn't give us any fanfare. There's no pizzazz. There's no abracadabra. There's no shaking of a wand. Jesus is not doing magic. He stands up and he's the one who created this world system. He created the course of nature. He directs it with his providential sovereignty. And in the moment he stands up and he declares, he rebukes it and he calms the storm. So simple and yet so profound. How could fear be present when we're in the, the very loving care of this one? The one who has authority over the very course of nature. The tired one with no permanent dwelling place to lay down and rest is also the authoritative Messiah that deserves our fearless faith and our total allegiance. Fourth truth that comes from this little paragraph. Jesus was the God man. And we see that in his weariness, his tiredness. Jesus deserves fearless faith. Jesus has authority over the course of nature. And finally, number four, Jesus must be fully known to be fully trusted. Look at verse 27. And the disciples ask an appropriate question. 
It also gives us a little window into their understanding of who Jesus was at this point. Matthew records, And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even the winds and seas obey him? It's an appropriate question because the disciples were still still getting a grasp of, of who this Messiah was. I mean, this was something beyond what they had already seen. Now, think about it. They've already seen a number of things that should have shook them to the core, right? They've seen anything from withered hands become whole. Uh, they've seen leprosy healed on the spot. They've seen people who are dying touched and they are alive. They've seen people with fevers that are able to serve right away. They've seen any number of miracles. They've seen blind people who were born that way, able to see. They've seen people consumed by demons who are controlling them and damaging them live normal lives because the demons are removed. And here they marvel and say, who is this man? What sort of man is this that even the winds and seas obey him? Jesus must be fully known to be fully trusted. And I believe here we find really the main point of this paragraph. Your confidence in Jesus, your understanding of his power and authority is directly connected to your trust and faith in him. To know him is to follow him. To know him is to trust him. To know him is to worship him. To know him is to love him. And to love him is to obey him. So we are confronted with the 12 disciples. And have you ever thought, I mean, like me, um, man, the Christian life would be a lot easier if I was just one of the 12. Because I got to like, I could sit and listen to Jesus actually talk to me. He could give me personal insight. He could share wisdom with me. He could counsel me. He could help me understand discipleship. And yet what we find here in Matthew chapter 8, verses 23 through 27, is a group of men who in the very presence of the Messiah are still struggling with understanding and being aware of who it is that they're sitting right in front of. And their trust is deficient because their understanding of him is also deficient. Their faith in him is is laden with fear because their faith is a, is a little faith. It is an underdeveloped faith. So it is for us. How well do you know your Lord? Because the answer to that question will affect your attitude and your actions, both in your crises moments and in your blessings. How well do we know the Lord? Not do we know the Lord as in I have been rescued from my sin and I'm a child of God. But how well do I know him? How deep is my relationship to him? How intimate is my fellowship with him? Because this much is sure. Matthew chapter 8 reveals that the relationship with Christ is directly connected to our response in the midst of crisis. So I think these are four simple truths that come from this historical narrative. They, they step us back to allow us to remember that Jesus is and was the very God-man. That He demands fearless faith. 
Just as he demands total allegiance and total surrender, as we've already seen. He's capable of affecting the very course of nature. He's the sovereign one over all that he's created. And finally, he must be fully known to be fully trusted. You say, I really struggle in trusting the Lord. I got trust issues. And this is a common pop psychology term. I got trust issues. All right. If we have trust issues when it comes to our interaction with the Lord, that is directly connected to how well we know him. And how well we know him is directly connected to how renewed our thinking is by his word. And our renewal of the mind in his word is directly connected to how deep are my affections for my Lord. Do I love him? Then I will obey and pursue him. If I obey and pursue him, I will know him. And if I know him, I will trust him. What sort of man is this that even the winds and seas obey him? This is the God man. This is the Messiah. That's Matthew's point. He's to be trusted. He's to be obeyed. He's to be followed. Matthew knows who he's writing about. And I think the answer to the question that ends this account, interesting that Matthew just ends with a question because the question should be easily answered. He's none other than the very promised one of heaven. Okay, so let me ask you some questions, hopefully to wrap this up for you this morning. Do you know Jesus? Do you know Jesus as in do you know the revelation of Jesus preserved for you on the pages of the written word, the more sure word? Do you know Jesus or do you know some self-defined, self-made Jesus, little J Jesus that is yours personally? Do you know and follow and love and trust the sovereign son, the Messiah King of Matthew? If so, it will be seen in your response, your attitude and your actions in your life. Just as it was seen in the negative sense, in the response of the actions and attitudes of the disciples. Unbeliever, if you're here this morning and you don't know the Lord, you've never even be, you've never had any relationship. There's no awareness. There's no submission. If you'll humbly bow your heart. To this Messiah King, to Jesus Christ, if you will trust that in his death, he provides for you the opportunity to have righteousness given to you. If you believe that at the cross, Jesus took upon himself your punishment, he was punished as if he lived your sinful life. And in belief and in faith, you will be credited with righteousness as if you lived his sinless life thus being forgiven from your sins and being given eternal life in the presence of jesus if you will humble yourself turn from your sin and follow him in faith he will save you you can know this one this sort of man who commands the wind and the seas believer this morning continue in your belief i'm reminded here of the man who came to Jesus and Jesus asked him, he demanded, he, he requested a miracle and Jesus asked him, do you believe? And the, and the man said, I do believe. And then he followed that up with help my unbelief. 
I f- that's what I feel when I come to this passage. I, I look at the disciples and I completely empathize with the disciples. I completely understand the fear. I completely understand the lacking faith. And, and I believe, but I need help in my unbelief. And believer this morning, let us be reminded and reassured and let our confidence be boosted that we are following the very Son of God. Let's live with trust that comes from knowing the sort of man that we follow. The very Christ himself. This one, this one who can calm storms with a word. Did not just come take on human flesh, but Philippians chapter two says he humbled himself. Became obedient, even to the point of death. Even Death on a cross, the ultimate humiliation. This one who could stand up in a boat and could in one word calm a storm. The one who is the miracle worker, who is validated as the very promised one. He's the one who came and whose body was broken and whose blood was shed. For our forgiveness, for our salvation. And so. Our theology that comes from Matthew chapter 8 verses 23 through 27. Our worship of the God man. Is tied directly to the culmination of his ministry. Which was not just miracles. Which was not just a validation of his teaching. But was the sacrifice of his own life. That's what we remember in communion. That's what we're going to remember as we celebrate In these next few moments, the Lord's sacrifice for us. We celebrate God of very gods, the second person of the Trinity, taking on human flesh and becoming our substitute. Let's do that with hearts that are focused on him, that are full of fearless faith in the miracle worker himself. Father, thank you for this brief study of a very familiar part of your word. Thank you for the clear revelation it is of the power of our Christ. His authority in action. Teach us to trust this one. May your spirit open our eyes that we might wonder at his glories, at his majesty, at his power, and at the miracle of being forgiven by this one, Standing in for us and bearing your wrath, Father, and bearing our punishment, suffering for us so that we might know forgiveness, so that we might be covered by his sacrifice. And that you, Father, might look upon us as bearing the righteousness of our Savior and your Son. Teach us to handle your word rightly. So that your spirit might affect us as he designs through these portions. May we be better bearers of your image this morning because of Matthew 8. And because of the opportunity to quietly remember your sacrifice. Than we would have apart from this. We ask this. Knowing that nothing brings you more glory than the sacrifice and the victory of your son at the cross. So we ask that you would use this time that we might appropriately worship you because of that sacrifice. 
We pray it in the name of the one who gave his life for us. Amen.